In one of the few instances where they both agree, both Ms. Magazine and the Bible label the various permutations of spirituality that support the feminist and abortion movements as witchcraft. And biblically, witchcraft is linked to rebellion, specifically rebellion against God's authority. It's true that the state should have minimal say in deciding anyone's fate, male or female. But the state's intrusion into a woman's fate in forbidding abortion is nothing compared with the decision that the unborn child's fate should be death. In addition, the church, as God's representative in the earth, has a duty to proclaim the revealed will of God on every issue, including child killing, binding men's consciences to the perfect will of their creator, whether they like it or not. Psalm 2 makes it clear that often they don't. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But this insistence that men don't have to be accountable to God and his laws should be seen for what it is. Rebellion, childish futility, and a form of suicide. For in the end, we don't just break God's laws. They will break us. When we consider the word witchcraft, one Bible personality stands out. Jezebel, more than anyone else in Scripture, represents the corrupting influence of witchcraft. In the book of Kings, the prophet Elijah mentions Jezebel along with two of the satanic deities we've already discussed. He asked to see the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. 1,000 years later, Jesus spoke to the church at Thyatira in Asia Minor about another Jezebel. But I have one thing against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. This admonition cuts to the heart of the church today. Truly, the church here and throughout much of the world has become the modern equivalent of Thyatira. Jezebel has not only been tolerated, she's been celebrated, even ordained. According to World Magazine, one of the religious left's premier organizations is the Religious Coalition for Abortion Rights. RCAR is a hardline supporter of federally funded abortions and the Freedom of Choice Act and represents groups of liberal Presbyterians, Episcopalians, Lutherans, Brethren, Moravians, Jews, Humanists, and Unitarians. And George Tiller, the infamous late-term abortion doctor who personally killed over 60,000 babies, many of them viable children who could have lived if they'd been removed by C-section, was a member in good standing of a Lutheran church in his hometown of Wichita, Kansas. He was actually serving as an usher with his wife in the choir when he was shot and killed. While we condemn the vigilantism of his killer, 
the fact remains that one of the worst mass murderers in history was not only tolerated, he was allowed membership and even a place of service in a church that calls itself Christian. Now, you may have a baptism if you wish. You may have a baptismal certificate. If you so desire, we can give you uh, our certificate of uh, premature miscarriage. We can take a lock of hair if you wish. You may have uh, fetal footprints if you wish. We can do about uh, whatever it is that you would like to, to have done. God's command is that the church repent of her deeds and drive Jezebel out of the church and from our nation. To help us understand the magnitude of the battle this represents, the prophet Malachi announced that God would send the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord. 400 years later, Jesus connected John the Baptist with the ministry of Elijah. The distinguishing feature of both Elijah and John's lives was their boldness in confronting wickedness and their command to repent. Scripture calls this ministry preparing the way of the Lord. In the same way that Elijah confronted the wicked rulers of his time and John prepared the way for the ministry of Christ by preaching repentance, so God's man in the earth, the church, has the responsibility to confront injustice, particularly as it's directed against the weak and defenseless, the least of these in the words of Jesus. The issue of abortion has always been very near and dear to the heart of my father. It's a passion of his, a passion that he passed on to me. And out of that passion, he determined to write a book. He wrote a book, uh, Abortion, A Rational Look at an Emotional Issue. And we at Ligonier created a video series and, and both the book publisher and Ligonier put on a full court press in promoting this. We called everybody involved in the pro-life movement. We, could. we tried to get this in as many hands as we could. And it flopped. The book went out of print more quickly than any of my father's books. The video series did miserably. And I'm persuaded that there's a very simple reason for this. Actually, essentially a twofold reason. One is a hard reality we have to face. The church is full of people who have secured for themselves, for their wives, for their girlfriends, for their daughters, abortions. Even those who have a generic pro-life perspective uh, suffer from, from that kind of guilt that makes them not want to study on the issue. The other issue is a little bit more understandable, and that's this, that abortion is phenomenally grisly business. Like the doctrine of hell, I think abortion is something you cannot look at too closely for too long, or it will literally drive you mad. When we consider what goes on 3,500 times every day, and we think about the preciousness of little babies, and the innocence of these children. You can't. You can't look at it too closely. But what we can and should do is push ourselves 
to look closer and closer and closer, to get into the horror so it stops being merely some important political issue that might influence our vote. This needs to be something that keeps us awake at night. This needs to be something that motivates us every day of the week. This needs to be something that we do need to study on, to be prepared to give an answer for, and to be active about in trying to change the world around us. There are many ways in which the church has been called to prepare the way. The most notable being the Great Commission, to go into all the world and preach the gospel. But just as Jezebel was Elijah's greatest challenge, we too must confront and defeat the forces of witchcraft that have manifested themselves through abortion. And just as Elijah was almost defeated by Jezebel, and John was killed by the witchcraft of Herod's wife, we must also realize that this is no easy battle. There can be no victory without the radical commitment to fight. <laughs> but I, I love God. I love, I love what he's doing. I love Operation Rescue when it started. It was birthed with a spirit of repentance in our hearts that, God, it's me. It's not the abortionists, not the, not the abortion mill employees. It's not Planned Parenthood, the ACLU. God, it's me. I am the one that is in sin. Lord, forgive me for not giving a voice to those who are being taken away to the slaughter. Forgive me for not rescuing them. Forgive me for not being like Jesus for them. Forgive me, Lord. It started that way. And as it did, it was a powerful movement. Because the Spirit of the Lord was there, the anointing was upon us. And then there was real unity. You see, we, we get so busy trying to be unified. It, it almost becomes a God. But unity isn't something you work up. As a matter of fact, the harder you try to work toward unity, the more you negate its very possibility. Unity comes as a gift from God. When we are lost in the vision and mission of Almighty God, He gives us unity of heart. He gives us unity of spirit. And then we become an army which the gates of hell cannot prevail. And that's the problem with conservatism. Let me say this, it's a good statement, is that the gates of hell will never prevail against the church of Jesus Christ, but they will forever prevail against conservatism, republicanism, against the president, against the Congress, against the packed Supreme Court. They will forever prevail against them, but they cannot prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. So who needs to be the first mover, the primary mover? It's the church of Jesus Christ, but we're way in the background saying, God bless you, brother, and we'll vote for you. And then the problem is once we vote for them, conservatives, we end up having to lobby them and, and pay them to do what they said they were gonna do in the first place. Well, you know, we can win this battle and abortion will come to an end in America. When the church of Jesus Christ makes up her mind, it will come to an end and not one second sooner. The spiritual pattern that has led us to our present abortion holocaust can be summarized as follows. Through the incestuous acts of Lot's daughters, a new demonic foothold was established in the earth. Their descendants, the Moabites and Ammonites, became increasingly subject to this stronghold, leading eventually to the worship of a demonic deity, identified variously as Asherah, Ashtaroth, Moloch, or Baal, with the worshipers practicing child sacrifice. The religion spread as the gods and goddesses of fertility, under various names, were worshiped throughout the ancient pagan world as a part of a widespread Mother Earth cult. 
the spread of Christianity in many areas began to suppress and eventually nearly eradicate these demonic practices as pagans were converted and light triumphed over darkness. As a result of apostasy and subsequent occult revivals, for example like the one in 17th century France, earth cults, witchcraft, and the worship of the goddess resurfaced in various forms. Witchcraft, as an organized religion, was revived in Europe and America beginning in the middle part of the 20th century. And finally, goddess worship has resurfaced in the 20th and 21st centuries as feminist spirituality. And not coincidentally, abortion, today's form of child sacrifice, has come right along with it. It's important to note the historic rationale of those who in ancient times offered up their own children to idols. They believed that the sacrifice of blood rejuvenated and strengthened the deity to whom it was dedicated, while at the same time binding the spirit to the presenter of the sacrifice. In other words, when they sacrificed their children to an idol, they became spiritual slaves to the demon it represented. Even more frightening was the effect upon the spiritual realm. Greater power was released through the outpouring of innocent blood. The Book of Kings recounts a battle where one of the descendants of Lot's daughters, the king of Moab, was about to face certain defeat at the hands of the Israelites and their larger, though spiritually compromised, army. In a desperate attempt to curry favor with his gods and gain the spiritual advantage, the king offered up his oldest son and heir on the wall of his city as a sacrifice. The fact that it was a burnt offering tells us that it was undoubtedly made to Baal, Moloch, or Ashtaroth. And what is even more sobering is what happened next. And there came great wrath against Israel, and they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. The sacrifice of innocent blood apparently tipped the scales and gave the pagan king victory over a more powerful army that was no longer enjoying the blessing of God. The Moabite rebellion described in 2 Kings chapter 3 was noted outside the biblical record by, incredibly enough, the very king who oversaw the rebellion. His account was discovered in 1868, etched on the Mesha Stele, more popularly known as the Moabite Stone. Lines 14 through 19 of the stone records, And the king of Israel built Ederot for himself, and I fought against the city and captured it. And I killed all the people of the city as a sacrifice for Kamosh and for Moab. And I brought back the fire hearth of his uncle from there, and I brought it before the face of Kamosh and Karioyot. And I made the men of Sharon live there, as well as the men of Maharit. And Kamosh said to me, Go take Nebo from Israel. And I went in the night and fought against it from daybreak until midday. And I took it and I killed the whole population, 7,000 male subjects and aliens, and female subjects, aliens, and servant girls, for I had devoted them to destruction for Ashtar Kamosh. 
And from there I took the vessels of Yahweh, and I presented them before the face of Kamosh. And the king of Israel had built Yahaz, and he stayed there throughout his campaign against me. And Kamosh drove him away before my face. This amazing yet little known archaeological find corroborates the account of 2 Kings chapter 3. Now, in particular, this places a burden on those who would claim that the Bible simply made up accounts of pagans sacrificing their children or other humans simply in order to justify their own practices and their own war against these pagan nations. Well, the most obvious similarities are that there was indeed a battle between these two nations. The names of the gods correspond correctly, and it is said that uh, Chemosh drove him away before my face, which does correspond with the record in 2 Kings 3, indicating from the point of view of the king of Moab that Israel had been driven away. Because it says quite clearly, I took and killed the whole population, 7,000 male subjects and aliens, plus many others, females, aliens, and servant girls, was specifically devoted for destruction for Ashtar Chemosh. The king of Moab perhaps perceived that he had uh, secured some of the holy objects of, uh, of the Yahweh religion, and he brought them before the face of his own god as a sort of demonstration of honor and victory. Now, some modern archaeologists will say that Ashtar is simply a variation of Ashtaroth, and that therefore also Chemosh is another variation of Molech. So the Moabite stone does give us clear evidence that human sacrifice was practiced by the Moabites. Evil will ultimately be allowed to prevail, at least for a season, against the backslider almost every time. This is a principle America would do well to consider, as the spiritual heritage of the Moabites and Ammonites is alive and well in our own day through abortion. The church is now fighting against the same spiritual forces for the very survival of our nation. Without true repentance and all-out spiritual warfare, what are our chances for victory when the demon's lust is now being gorged on the blood of not just one, but well over a million children sacrificed each year? The land that God chose to bring his people into after their long captivity in Egypt was filled with nations that practiced child sacrifice. And what was his commandment to Israel? When you cross over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then shall you drive out all the inhabitants of the land before you and destroy all their molten images and demolish all their high places. This scripture provides a model for our response to paganism, child sacrifice, and every other great evil. The Old Testament provides temporal examples and insights into what we, God's new covenant people, must accomplish in the spiritual realm. In the same way, for example, that Israel followed a man named Joshua into the promised land, so the church, spiritual Israel, follows a man named Joshua, or Yeshua, Jesus, into the land of promise. Everything that the Israelites underwent has a direct new covenant application. How do we drive out pagan idolatry and demolish their high places in the new covenant? Should we, like ancient Israel, attack the individuals responsible for the idolatry? Absolutely not. For our ultimate battle is not against flesh and blood. In Old Testament times, the Holy Spirit had not yet been given in the way that we experience Him today. 
Without access to the sanctuary, to the throne of God, mere men had neither the anointing nor the authority to confront the demonic powers directly. In order to defeat the forces of wickedness, there was no recourse except to destroy the people through whom those forces operated. But with the coming of Jesus, the whole balance of power changed. For the first time, we see a man directly confronting the spiritual forces of darkness. Jesus even defines this as one of the primary signs that the kingdom of God has come into this world. But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. After the cross, where the atonement for sin was accomplished, Satan's head was crushed and the veil that separated mankind from God's sanctuary was rent. After Jesus' ascension and enthronement at the right hand of the Father, after all earthly and heavenly authority was granted to him and by extension to us as his deputized earthly ambassadors, and after the power of the Holy Spirit came upon the church and we were granted sanctuary access from where we can now pray, prophesy, and proclaim God's kingdom in the earth. God's people can now direct their efforts to the real problem, the spiritual realm. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Uh, I believe that Satan is alive, but he is not very well. Uh, there's a very interesting dynamic that runs through Scripture starts with Genesis chapter 3 where this promise is made that the seed of the serpent will nip at the heels of the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman will turn around and crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And through Scripture you, you, you begin to see this motif unfold where you have Jael and Sisera where Jael takes a tent peg and rams it through Sisera's head. Then uh, you have David and, and Goliath where David takes the stone and directs it right at Goliath's head and cut off his head. And then you get into the New Testament and Jesus Christ is crucified at a very unique spot, Golgotha, the place of the skull. The, the very instrument that Satan uses, that he thinks he's going to use to defeat Jesus, is turned on him and does the very head-crushing motif that was prophesied way back in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. But then it goes further in Romans chapter 16 verse 20 where it says, and God will soon crush Satan under your feet. So there's the application of the work of Christ beyond the individual to the church and to show the present status of Satan in the world that he is alive but he is not well on planet earth. The simple glorious fact is Jesus has defeated Satan. As a new Adam, he has given the earth back to man, specifically his born-again descendants, and has recommissioned them to subdue and cultivate, in a word, heavenize this world. And he has granted all manner of precious and magnificent promises that we can and will, in the end, prevail. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them 
the evil spirits and false prophets, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Sit at my right hand, the Father told Jesus after his enthronement, until I make all your enemies a footstool for your feet. All things are possible for one who believes. For everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This last verse, and there are many more like these, is particularly relevant to our subject matter here because of its mention of gates and hell. Gates in the Bible represent places of authority, economic, government, or military, and are thus critically important from a spiritual warfare perspective. They're also primarily defensive in nature. So the picture we have in this glorious promise by Jesus is one of the church charging the gates, the strongholds of hell, and hell not being able to withstand the assault. This great truth was wonderfully echoed in the famous quote by the renowned missionary C.T. Studd. Some wish to live within the sound of a chapel bell. I wish to run a rescue mission within a yard of hell. That child sacrifice is Satan's stronghold and will be what we find as we near hell's gates can be seen in the word that Jesus most often used to refer to hell the place of judgment into which the devil, his angels, and all that do evil will ultimately be cast. Gehenna, for example, it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, Gehenna, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Gehenna, an abbreviation of the proper name Valley of the Son of Hinnom, was a valley outside the southwest wall of Jerusalem. It was near there that the backslidden King Solomon first erected a place of worship for Chamash, the abomination of Moab, and for Moloch, the abomination of the Ammonites. Later, kings like Ahaz and Manasseh went even further in this idolatry, causing their children to be burned to death in a satanic sacrifice in this very valley. Rabbinical history records that large brass representations of these pagan deities that featured a brazen altar area formed from the idol's outstretched hands. It was then heated until the hands became red hot. The sacrifice was then made to pass through the fire by being placed on the hands and burned to death, while priests beat drums in order to drown out the child's screams. Later, during a season of spiritual revival and national repentance, King Josiah put an end to this abomination, destroying the idols in high places and rendering the area ceremonially unclean by covering it with human bones and other corruptions. Eventually, the Valley of Hinnom became a literal cesspool and smoldering dump, a place of defilement and a fit representation of the withering judgment God brings against sin, particularly the abomination of child sacrifice. It was this precise place that Jesus used as a metaphor for hell, the place where the worm of man's fallen nature will never die 
and where the fire of his lusts will never be quenched. Do you want to know where the gates of hell are? Where we're to focus our efforts as we run our rescue mission on its very doorstep? It's wherever children are being sacrificed to satisfy the lusts and convenience of others. Take courage, Christian, as we commit ourselves to this battle, as we finally decide to act with a focus and resolve commensurate with the horror of babies being murdered in our own backyard. Our Lord has promised us that the gates of hell will in the end be unable to stand against us. Again, C.T. Studd. When we are in hand-to-hand -hand conflict with the world, the flesh, and the devil himself, neat little biblical confectionery is like shooting lions with a pea shooter. God needs a man who will let go and deliver blows right and left as hard as he can hit in the power of the Holy Ghost. Nothing but forked lightning Christians will count. <laughs>